We're back in Hebrews, as you can see. Now this is, there's a couple of things that are different today. We haven't had points in a Hebrews sermon for like the three points. It's generally been straight through and we see where we go. We've got points today. We've also got PowerPoint today. I know, I'm verging into PowerPoint. It could be dangerous. But there are lots of P's. There's points and PowerPoint, but all the points are P's. Everything starts with the letter P. Let's get on with, let's get on with the serious stuff. Ephesians. My word, this is a really good start today. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9. We're picking up, last time we read verse 1 to 12, we're going to pick up just towards the end of that passage and through to verse 20. Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we're convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end, so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, so last time we were in Hebrews, we looked at the fact that the writer brings this stark warning. This Look, if anyone's been... It's impossible for those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. It's, it's start, it kind of hits them. But as we, we came to the conclusion last time, he's, he's looking to draw them in. Look, guys, press on in what you have. See what it is that you've got. See, I can see something in you. That's what he goes on to say here. Look, I can see better things for you. I see what God is doing in your life. I can see the outworking of it in the works that you're doing. His aim was not to scare them specifically, but to drive them back to hope more fully in God. To drive them back. Look, look at what you have in him. And he comes to, to real encouragement as we get into this section. We do see his heart for them, dear friends. He's, 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 a, he's writing out of care and concern for them. 
And as I say, he sees better things in them. He sees, look, look guys, I, I, I see that you are ones who've truly come to know God. You've come in, you, you're in Christ, so press on in it. And that's his word. You're in Christ, so press on. Be encouraged. Keep going. Take heart. And once he says, so as not to become lazy. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And then he goes on in these next verses from verse 13 to kind of expand that a bit and look at that and see. And that's where we're going to get three Ps from. We're going to look at a person, a promise and a picture. And then you'll see as they come up on the slides, there's a few more Ps that are involved with all those Ps. So let's look at a person. A person who patiently persevered. Sorry. What does he say? He says, imitate those who, fa- who patiently, through, through faith and patience, inherit what has been promised. And he goes on, he's going on to look at more of those people, those people who live by faith, those examples in scripture, those who live by faith, in that familiar passage in Hebrews chapter 11. But for now, he draws in on Abraham. And in part, he uses Abraham as an example. Abraham who, what does it say? Verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so, after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. And we see quite clearly in Genesis that Abraham had to wait. Abraham... Abraham received the promises of God. He had to wait to see them fulfilled. We see that starting in Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The Lord had said to Abraham, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You see, God calls Abraham. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 confirms that that was when Abraham was in in a place called Ur. He goes seemingly with his family to start when they settle in Haran. It's a long journey from one to another. He goes following God's call. And then from Haran, he sets out to the land that God will show him. At this point, he's 75 years old. He leaves his family. He says his father stayed in Haran. But he goes with Sarah, his wife. I'm going to refer to Abraham and Sarah as Abraham and Sarah all the way through. People who've looked at Genesis 12 will see this is Abraham and Sarai. And then they become Abraham and Sarah. I'm going to stick with one name. But he goes with Sarah and he takes Lot, his nephew, with him and they go off. He goes. He trusts God and follows where God commands. They come to Canaan in verse 7. And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. We see the promises of God coming to Abraham. Moving on in the story, we see loads of things happen. There's a famine in the land. They go to Egypt. They come back from Egypt. Lot and Abraham, they separate and go to different places. And then God speaks again in chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a, to Abraham in a vision. 
Do not be afraid, Abraham. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, you've given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. God's called him out of a land and he's, he's promised him, I'm going to make you great. I'm going to make, give you descendants and they're going to bless the whole earth. And Abraham, this time on, is still waiting for, his, for a child, for an heir. Some, a servant is going to inherit his estate. And God says, no, Abraham, come outside. Come outside and look up at the sky. Can you count the stars? Can't count the stars on that picture. Can you count the stars? This is a great picture that God gives to Abraham. Look. Look at the stars of the sky. This is a big promise. Count the stars, if indeed you can count them. So shall your offspring be. This is a big promise. God makes Abraham a big promise. And Abraham believes. What does it say? Verse... Verse 6, Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. But we move on, it keeps going on this story. He's been given the promise again, but then we see more time passes, and they kind of take things into their own hands, and we have this whole situation with Hagar, and Ishmael is born, and a lot of time passes, a lot of time. Until we get to chapter 17. And by this time, since Abraham left Haran, 24 years have passed. He's been waiting. He hasn't got it perfect all the way through, but he's been waiting, trusting God. And God says this, when Abraham was 99 years old, this is 17 verse 1, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. He says it again. He says it again. And then during this passage, he tells him, no, Abraham, in a year's time, Sarah will give you a son. You'll have a son together. There will be, you will have a child. This promise that I gave you is going to be fulfilled, Abraham. It's a long, long wait. But then we see in the following chapters, Isaac is born. Isaac is born. And we get to chapter 22, which actually Hebrews is referring to specifically. It's referring to a specific thing that God says to Abraham where he swears by himself. We know the familiar story of Genesis 22, verse 1 and 2. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah and sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I will show you. Abraham goes. Abraham goes. He trusts God. He's waited patiently with God, trusting him. He trusts him. He goes. And we know the story that we get to the point and God says, no, Abraham, stop. You don't need to kill your son. And then they see a ram caught in the thicket and the ram takes Isaac's place and they kill the ram. And that's where then God speaks this promise that we see in Hebrews uh, chapter 6. 
Uh, Genesis 22:15. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. We see it's just a whistle-stop tour, whistle stop tour through the promises of God to Abraham in, in Genesis. We see a period of, I don't know how many years in the end, but we see 25 years before Isaac is born. And then Isaac's grown up to a certain point and they go up the mountain. It's this big time that I, Abraham waits patiently for God. says, I believe in you. It's what the writer calls his listeners to imitate. Imitate those. Be patient. Persevere. Keep going. He focuses on the fact that Abraham waited, but his true focus is not on Abraham, but on Abraham's faith in God. His focus is on the promises of God and the one who gives the promise. But, but he does focus on Abraham. And Paul picks up the fact that Abraham believed God. Romans chapter 4. And verse 18. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead, yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. It's what the writers of the Hebrews calls us to imitate. Believe him, trust him, press on in him. But the writer quickly moves on. In fact, he's already focusing on it. Not just on Abraham did a good job of believing. No, what was he believing in? What was he believing in? The focus isn't on Abraham, except that we can see he patiently believed. He, he, was, he went in faith. He trusted God. We see a person who patiently persisted. But secondly, we see a promise. A promise and a powerful promise maker. I didn't go back to that verse, did I, Karis? No, it's all right. In drawing us to imitate those, and particularly to imitate Abraham, homes in on the promise that was made, and the one who made the promise. What does he actually say in Hebrews 6, verse 13, and through to 15? And onwards, sorry, to 18. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this 
so that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. He's looking at Abraham waiting, but he's looking more at the God who made the promise. When God made the promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. It's God who makes the promise. It's God who calls Abraham out. It's God who promises to bless all the nations through Abraham's offspring. That's what the focus of the writer is here. His focus is on God who makes the promise. As I've said, that's particularly seen in the promise given in Genesis 22, which we've just read. And the writer picks up on this. Since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself. And the simple and obvious truth that we get out of that is, look, look at the one who made the promise. Look at who he is. He's the greatest. He is above all. There is no one who compares to him. As the psalmists say, Psalm 40 verse 5, Many, Lord my God, are the wonders you have done, the things you planned for us, none can compare with you. Were I to speak and tell of your deeds, they would be too many to declare. And then later in Psalm 86, Among the gods there is none like you, Lord. No deeds can compare with yours. All the nations you've made, they will come and worship before you, Lord. They will bring glory to your name. For you are great and do marvellous deeds. You alone are God. Initially, the simple truth that's drawn out. Look, God is the great. He is above all things. And he's the one who makes the promise. Then he starts talking about oaths. And the fact that people swear by someone greater than themselves. And it's true, there's a sense of appealing to a higher authority. To to kind of confirm what I'm saying is trustworthy. In a a sense, don't just take my word for it, but I'm, I'm appealing to a higher authority. Abraham, we see, swear in the presence of God. He's asked to make an oath to say, actually, what I'm saying uh, I will do. It's in Genesis 21. And we see that even in, in uh, modern times. And principally it's God who's called upon as the higher authority. Can we see the picture? That's a picture of an American president. The current American president. But he's swearing an oath to come into his, uh, I think, to come into his office as president. He's got his hand on a Bible. It's what, whether it has complete power of what they're saying but God will hold people to what they say but it's what we do in different situations we see it with the American president we see it in courtrooms where people swear on a bible maybe not always nowadays people have said no I want to do it by something else they're saying look I swear that the evidence I shall give shall be the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth so help me God in weddings we make vows in the presence of God Why do I go into all of that? Can we put the next slide up? We don't always look at, just stare at a picture of President Obama. For God, there is no one greater to appeal to. So, in this case, he swears by himself. Because the one who makes the promise, he is the greatest. He is beyond compare. 
We sing the songs, our God is greater, our God is stronger, God you are higher than any other. Then sings my soul, my saviour God to thee, how great thou art. But the point is this, because he's the great look, God makes the promise utterly secure. What's he say? By two unchangeable things in that God cannot lie. This is the point. God cannot lie. God is not like a human. As, as, uh, as Balaam says to Balak in Numbers 23, God is not human that he should lie. Not a human being that he should change his mind. Did he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is truth. God is, his words are utterly trustworthy. In that sense, the promise itself is enough. What God says will come to pass. But on top of that, God's confirmed it with an oath. God's confirmed it with an oath. There is absolutely no doubt in the security and certainty of this promise. The writer calls us to imitate those who through faith and patience receive what's promised. But what he focuses in on is, look at how secure the promise is. Look at how secure the promise is and look at how faithful and trustworthy the one who made the promise is. And then he draws it in on his readers and on us with the third point. He draws us to a picture and consequently to our perfect priest. Because the writer's not just saying, look, God, God made a promise to Abraham and he kept it. And look, Abraham waited and Abraham received what was promised to him. He did. We see the part of that fulfillment of that promise. Isaac is born. Abraham received. But what does he say? From verse 18, God did this, God confirmed it with an oath, so that, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. What's he saying? We who have fled to take hold. We may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor to the soul. And of course, we take great encouragement from the general truth that God is the greatest. He is beyond compare. He is above all things. And that he is faithful. He is the faithful one. But the point is this, that God's promise to Abraham is being worked out. We're caught up in it. We are heirs of the promise. If we are those who have fled to take hold of this hope, if we have come to trust in Christ, if we are in him, because what is the promise? The end of Genesis 22, uh, verse 18 said, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. 
And we see, we see as we follow the story through, we see Isaac born. We see the nation of Israel grow. We see them come back and take the land. But the ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, the blessing that will come to all nations, Paul picks it up in Galatians chapter 3. He's encouraging the Galatians to live by faith, to keep going in the grace that they've received, not to trust in the work in works of the law, but to, tr- to be those who live by faith. And he says this in verse 16 in chapter 3. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. The ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham was going to come through Jesus. It was going to come through Jesus who was going to come and die for sins. Who was going to come and now be ascended on high as high priest. To be the one through whom all nations can be blessed. And he goes on in verse 26 to 29. So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have closed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The writer wants to make us so clear that this promise is secure. Look, this is what God has done. This is what God, he, he sealed it with an oath so that you may be encouraged. Because this is the promise that was, is, gonna, is being fulfilled. It's just that it's fulfilled in Christ. At the end of time, God is working towards the complete fulfillment. It's not just a limited, isolated promise to Abraham. No, this is God's plan that is being worked out. And that is utterly unchangeable, sealed with an oath. And so we come to the picture I was talking about. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. There's an anchor. But it's a great picture of something that is utterly secure. We get that, the word has that sense of, look, an anchor will hold it fast. It will hold a ship fast in a storm or it will stop it from drifting on calm seas. It's a complete, secure, an image of complete security. But he goes beyond that. He doesn't just say it's an anchor. Because actually that anchor is completely useless. Do you know why? It's mounted on a plinth, sat on a dock. It does nothing. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul because of where it is anchored, because of where it is, because of what it actually is doing. It's firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Because the point is, an anchor... Is only secure because it's, it's anchored in something. That, that anchor needs mounting onto a ship and dropping down to the seabed so that it can actually do what it's supposed to do. 
I guess climbers will be familiar with the idea of anchors and anchor points. But you've got to be completely secure that that is in a, a proper secure place in the rock. Either it's firmly, securely, permanently mounted or I was looking... You can get all these different devices that climbers put into little gaps in rocks. Any climbers know what I'm talking about. Get all these devices, but they've got to go into a secure place. Because it's completely useless just floating about in the air. It's not going to hold anything. But when it's secure in a particular gap in the rock, then it will hold you. It will hold you. It will be secure. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul because it's secure in a completely unchangeable promise of God. It is completely and utterly unchanging, solid, secure. We see that because God has promised it. We see that because God has secured it, has sealed it, has made it absolutely unchangeable by securing it with an oath. But he brings us on to see... We see Jesus. It's secure also because we see Jesus. This is God's plan being worked out. What he promised to Abraham long ago. We see Jesus who has gone into the inner sanctuary through the curtain. He's he's gone into the very throne room of God. Our hope. Our high priest forever. The point of the writer is to say, look, we can press on because the promise is so sure. We can press on because we see Jesus standing, the one who has gone before us, our high priest, our forerunner, as he's already talked about so much in chapter 2. We see Jesus, chapter 2 verse 9 in Hebrews, we see Jesus who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer, the forerunner of that salvation, perfect through what he suffered. We see him. God made the promise. God does what he says. God is continuing to work it out. God is working out his promise. We can be so utterly sure of our position before him because he has promised it. The writer calls us, or calls the Hebrews, and and calls us to press on in God, to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Why should we keep on? Why should we press on? Because we have a faithful God. Because we have a faithful God whose promise is utterly secure. Whenever we come up against anything, whenever anything seems slightly shaky, slightly dodgy, the circumstances suggest no. We see that we are utterly secure in Christ. God has made the promise and he does not lie. The hope that we have is secure, certain, and it's glorious. So 
So the call today is to be encouraged. Be encouraged. Like Abraham, he saw the circumstances. He didn't dismiss them. He didn't say, well, yeah, okay, well, it looks like I'm 99 years old, but really, I must be 30. No, he knew. He knew the circumstances. He faced the facts, but he trusted God. And now we have this hope. We have this hope that is utterly secure so we can trust him. In everything, with everything, for everything. Be encouraged. He is faithful and we can trust him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we see for our benefit. You've confirmed that your promise is so sure. Lord, there is nothing that can change your plans. Lord, you are going to work them out, Lord. And we see this hope. This hope, this anchor for the soul. Secure, certain. We can trust you, God. Because ultimately we see Jesus, our high priest, the one who has taken our place, the one who died for us, reigning, stood seated beside you in glory, the one who is there forever interceding for us. Lord, we want to press on, following you, trusting you. Because we know you are a faithful God. You are a faithful God. What you do, you will say. What you say, you will do. Thank you, Lord. Amen.